Blog Talk Radio. blatant abuse of power, the President of the United States attempted to use the power of his office and the power of the federal government to financially injure a company owned by a man who published journalism the President doesn't like. 
The Washington Post reporting today that Trump has personally been pushing the Postmaster General to raise shipping rates on Amazon, a company owned by Jeff Bezos, who also happens to publish the Washington Post. And for months, as you probably noticed, the president has repeatedly, insistently linked Amazon to the Washington Post, calling the, quote, fake Washington Post a lobbyist for Amazon saying the paper functions as a tax shelter for Bezos, while also falsely claiming that Amazon rips off the post office. The post office is losing billions of dollars, and the taxpayers are paying for that money because it delivers packages for Amazon at a very below cost. We now know that was not idle chatter. The president has reportedly been working hard behind closed doors to punish Jeff Bezos financially, pushing the post office to double Amazon's shipping charges, according to the Washington Post. The Postmaster General and Trump have met at the White House about the matter several times already, beginning in 2017, most recently four months ago. The meetings have, interestingly, never appeared on Trump's public schedule. So far, the Postmaster General has resisted by explaining in multiple conversations occurring this year and last that these arrangements are bound by contracts and must be reviewed by a regulatory commission. Joining me now, Maya Wiley, former assistant U.S. attorney. Um, you also worked uh, as sort of the, corp the, the counsel to Mayor Bill de Blasio, right? I so I, I want to just ask you this. So let's say you're, you're in that position. You're advising a mayor, this mayor, who fights with the New York press all the time. And he comes in and he says, I'm going to go uh, threaten to revoke the zoning to the New York Times. <laughs> no, seriously. He says, I'm just so fed up. It would more likely you, be the New York Post. Yeah, the New York Post. You're right. The New York Post. Perfect. He said, we're going we're gonna to screw them on the zoning. I, I want to call the zoning commissioner in here, and I want to go after him and change it for the New York Post. What would you say to him? Well, af wait, before or after I started spluttering and fell down on the floor. I mean, because it's so outrageous. So it's so outrageous. I can't imagine anyone ever other than, actually, him doing, other right. than Donald Trump ever actually raising this even in, as a question of whether he could do it in the first place. I mean, usually it doesn't even come up as a question, right? right? Do I have the power to actually go after someone I don't like just because I don't like them or because what they're saying about me as a public official? Why is that? Why does that it, not even come to people's minds? Uh, well, first of all, there's this thing called the U.S. Constitution. It has this amendment in it, was the first amendment right. that protects free speech. Uh, so number one, it is a constitutional protection. I mean, that's, and if you're an elected official, you expect to have the media examine you, critique you, say maybe things about you you don't like. In fact, it happens every day to every politician across the country, no matter At what party you're in. Every level of government At everywhere. every level of government. And the other thing I find so outrageous about this is not only, first of all, if he wanted to do something that was legitimate, he could go to Congress. Absolutely. Because the U.S. Postal Service does not operate fully as an independent entity, right? It's, it's a quasi-governmental institution, but it's really governed by Congress. And in fact, one of the reasons it has the financial problems it has right now is because Congress required it to, in 2006 to pay 75 years in advance on all of retirement attention. health benefits. Right. Imagine if someone came to you and said, you have to take out of your paycheck 75 years worth of retiree health benefits up front, you would actually be homeless. Right. So that's essentially what we did to the Postal Service. He, he could go to Congress and say, I think the Postal Service is giving Amazon a pass. They should actually look at what they're charging for packages for third parties. That's not what he did. That's a great point because it's 
in some ways, this has been happening in front of us. I mean, he berates Amazon. He calls them the Amazon Washington Post, and then he talks about the sweetheart deal, which is just not true, actually, factually, in terms of the cost. But there's something about the secret meetings of lobbying the Postmaster General that looks like he's trying to get away with something. Right. Maybe it looks like when you're talking to the former FBI director about in certain investigations. That's right. And, and, and this is, I mean, I, I, I it's don't... It's a pattern of behavior. It is a pattern of behavior. It, it, I, and I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but to me, it's like... I don't know what's impeachable, what's not, but as abuses of power go, this is really up there. Like trying to, to, to use your power to shut, to, to screw Jeff Bezos, to punish him for what the free press writes about you, is that's yeah. real serious. And there is a difference here. He has a history and a pattern of using his tweets to attack his enemies, and including other corporations that he disagrees with or doesn't like, right. or supporting corporations that he does. This is very different because it was a secret meeting, because he could have gone to Congress if it was a real legitimate policy matter. And he could, uh, you know, there is this thing, if the Jeff Bezos should think about, called a civil action. Well, uh, under Bivens, which is a Supreme Court case that says you can sue a public official for violating your constitutional rights. I think that would be very interesting if they sued, and particularly given what we just learned today. Maya Wiley, thank you for being here. Thank you. Hey there, I'm Chris Hayes from MSNBC. Thanks for watching MSNBC on YouTube. If you want to keep up to date with the videos we're putting out, you can click subscribe just below me, or click over on this list to see lots of other great videos. And there are new ethics questions for President Trump. After disclosing on financial forms, he reimbursed Michael Cohen for the Stormy Daniels payment. The disclosure came in the very last footnote on page 45 of the 92-page report. It claims, quote, in the interest of transparency, while not required to be disclosed as reportable liabilities, in 2016, expenses were incurred by one of Trump's attorneys, Michael Cohen. The report claims that Cohen sought reimbursement of those expenses and that Trump, quote, fully reimbursed Cohen in 2017. Hmm. However, the government ethics chief disputes that Cohen's payment was an expense and therefore not required to be reported. In a letter to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, the acting ethics director writes that based on information from the president's disclosure, quote, the payment made by Mr. Cohen is required to be reported as a liability. So that means the ethics chief believes Trump should have disclosed the payment on last year's financial form, which he did not. The acting ethics director ends his letter by telling the deputy AG that he's providing him with the president's financial reports from last year and this year, quote, because you may find the disclosure relevant to any inquiry you may be pursuing regarding the president's prior report signed last year. So, Frank, uh, the president of the United States declares in his financial form that he paid repaid Michael Cohen somewhere in between $100,000 and $250,000. So this morning, how many points of peril does this put the president in? So the, I, I come up with three scenarios. Two of them are awful for the president. The first one lacks credulity, but let's talk about it. That is that the president knew nothing about the payments. He's simply a good guy trying to repay his lawyer Cohen, who tells him after the fact, I need, I need, recomp I need compensation. We, we've already gone beyond that because Giuliani has publicly said that the president knows that Michael takes care of such things. So let's go to scenario number two. Scenario number two is the president knew that this was being done. He knew fictitious corporations might have been set up. He knew that a, a bank loan must have been set up fictitiously and there may be money laundering and, and or foreign governments involved. That makes him a co-conspirator with Cohen for those underlying violations. The third scenario is that he found out later that things were done were illegal and he paid Michael back, that makes him an accessory after the fact. He's in trouble. Yeah, and there's, I mean, just to be very clear, 
we're really, and I can't imagine anybody at this table is interested in the president's personal relationship uh, with a porn star or anybody else. But at this point, there is definitely a clear line that, that is drawn between the president, and stop me if I'm wrong, and Michael Cohen, and money to a porn star who claims that there was an affair. The president has yet to admit to the affair, but there is a line of money that goes to this woman right before the election. And it appears to be to silence her for an affair. Am I correct? And, and the question, yes, you're correct. And the question will become how much did the president know about the methodology of this payment mm -hmm. and whether there were illegalities underlying that payment? That's what none of us know, including the president, because the president doesn't use email. So he doesn't know what the FBI seized in Michael Cohen's offices. How did Cohen document every conversation with the president? The FBI has that. So the FBI has that, but even more, Jeremy Bash, national security issues would be that, first of all, are there other women? Second of all, can this president be bribed or blackmailed? And the timing of these payments right before, this is, this is clearly an issue that the American people, unfortunately, it matters to them. It's not a, a personal you know, story of some cheap, disgusting affair the president might have had. Unfortunately, we have to talk about this because the president might be a danger if there are multiple situations like this and he can be pressured to perhaps give information away or be used by the Russians because a woman can shake him down for $130,000. Or more. Yeah, the re the, that's right, Mika. The reason these financial disclosure forms in our government are so vital, so important, not just for transparency, we want to understand to whom a president of the United States is indebted, because obviously that person has leverage, uh, financial, but also potentially political leverage over a president, over our elected officials. And so if these forms are, are inaccurate, you know, sometimes there's a clerical error, and that's generally forgiven. But if it's knowing concealment, uh, willful uh, efforts to conceal or hide payments, places where the president is indebted, that is a federal crime. And if we uphold the standard that the president is no more above the law than anybody else, anybody else in our government, anybody else in our society, then I agree with Frank, the president has some explaining to do. Thanks for checking out MSNBC on YouTube and make sure you subscribe to stay up to date on the day's biggest stories and you can click on any of the videos around us to watch more for Morning Joe and MSNBC. Thanks so much for watching. The White House has long denied President Trump knew about any payment, so why did it take so long for the truth to come out? Let's take a look at the many different versions of the story. Back in February, Cohen claimed he paid out the money out of his own pocket and was not reimbursed by the Trump Organization or the campaign. So now, that's a lie. Then, on March 7th, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders told reporters, quote, there was no knowledge of any payments from the president, and he denies all of these allegations. Nearly a month later, on April 5th, the president himself told reporters that he knew nothing about the payment and directed all further questions to Michael Cohen. But during his media blitz earlier this month, Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani contradicted the president, telling Fox News Trump did know about the payment and reimbursed Cohen. That led to the president tweeting a lengthy and formal explanation. And after weeks and weeks of walkbacks from Giuliani, the president acknowledged the payment on his financial disclosure form. And now to complicate things, if they're not complicated enough, just this morning, Stormy Daniels' attorney, Michael Avenatti, said on Morning Joe there could even be more women who received hush money from Trump and Cohen. 
They are not fully vetted, but there's at least two that I think are on solid ground. And I think that as the evidence rolls out over the coming months, um, disclosures are going to be made that my client was not alone as it relates to these payments, that Michael Cohen was not a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week fixer for the sole purpose of taking care of Stormy Daniels. Two, two women who allege that they have agreements with Michael Cohen or Donald Trump? Correct. And women who claim to have had affairs or sex with Donald Trump? Correct. And these women, um, are they part of a larger payments? I'm sorry? Did they have larger payments paid to them, larger than $130,000? Yes. Okay. Joining me now, my friend from CNBC, John Harwood, Rosalind Helderman, political investigations reporter for The Washington Post, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and an MSNBC contributor. Barbara, to you first. The OGE did not recommend any specific legal action. Instead, it says, just quote, you may find the disclosure relevant to any inquiry you may be pursuing. What does the Justice Department do with that? And you why know, do they raise this? I think this is something that would uh, rightfully belong on the plate of Robert Mueller or maybe the Southern District of New York in, in terms of looking into these things. I don't know that anyone would choose to exercise their prosecutorial discretion to charge just one isolated uh, statement on one of these forms. But um, it is the shifting stories that could show consciousness of guilt that is really interesting here. Um, why was this not disclosed? It should have been disclosed last year. Why was it not disclosed? It's only being disclosed now that the whole world knows about it. Um, what more is there beneath the surface? And so I think it's appropriate that it be handed over to the Justice Department for further investigation because it could be part of a larger story of financial impropriety. That's what sort of stands out to me because when we just walk through the different stories, Michael Cohen and the president and Sarah Sanders and Rudy Giuliani have told us over the last few months, it doesn't make sense. I understand why the president doesn't want to sit down with Robert Mueller. Why would anyone? But if you're innocent, simply tell the truth. So, Rosalind, walk us through how unusual it is for a letter like this to be put forward. I believe it's very unusual. Um, it, you know, it's important to remember that the Office of Government Ethics uh, has a sort of tradition of independence, but uh, there are Trump appointees involved here. Uh, and they made the decision to uh, flag this not in an informal, verbal way over a phone call, but actually to send a letter. John, we also learned new details about Trump's businesses. From your estimation, did it show significant changes in income compared to past years before he took office? And do we have any insight into how specifically Trump paid taxes? Because he had said before it made him a smart American to pay the lowest amount of taxes possible. That's true. But there's a difference between a smart American and optimizing your tax bill and being someone who avoids, or dare I say, evades paying taxes. No, this doesn't compensate, Stephanie, for the uh, failure to disclose tax returns. It has some information. It shows that the uh, basic sources of income that the president had from properties that he visited uh, uh, repeatedly as president, his uh, hotel, his uh, uh, Mar-a-Lago, his golf courses, uh, those continue to be sources of income. Some of them have revenue down, some have it up, uh, but, you know, he reported more than $400 million in revenue or income. Uh, he, there were some new businesses started, uh, as our colleagues at the Wall Street Journal pointed out, uh, since he's been president that he reported income from. 
but we only have limited visibility uh, through to the intricacies of his finances through these disclosures. And I do think uh, Barbara McQuaid made the right point that uh, uh, it is unlikely that anybody's going to prosecute a sole um, uh, shift uh, in the uh, disclosure report or failure to file earlier, but the entire pattern saying that uh, we don't, don't have to report this, but we are in the interest of transparency reeks of a, a justification that was invented uh, to cover the fact that this is something that they had wanted to keep secret and now it's public. It sort of goes back to my kids. Everybody messes up. Everybody tells a lie. It's what you do after the fact and the elaborate cover-up always gets you. Barbara, I have got to ask you about Ronan Farrow's stunning piece in The New Yorker. My head is still spinning revealing that it's a law enforcement official who is the one who leaked Michael Cohen's financial records last week. Now, the official tells the New Yorker, Ronan Farrow, that he or she did it because other suspicious transactions were missing from a government database, saying, quote, I have never seen something pulled off the system. That system is a safeguard for the bank. It is a stockpile of information. When something's not there that should be, I immediately became concerned. So this person who, who leaked, who disclosed this to Michael Avenatti, is, is putting him or herself at major risk. He was, this person said they were terrified of what the consequences could be for them. Why would they go forward and why wouldn't they raise this to the Department of Justice or Bob Mueller's team? Why go Avenatti? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, it sounds like this person at least perceives himself or herself to be a whistleblower detecting um, the removal from the database of some suspicious activity reports. I, I suppose there are a lot of different scenarios about why that could be removed. Um, I, I, I do believe that uh, investigators have the ability to remove those very sensitive reports because remember, this is a database maintained by the Treasury Department of all the reports that are received from banks it, of suspicious activity. Then could it be Mueller's team asking for it to be removed? It doesn't I, have I to be something nefarious. I think it could um, because it, it can be accessed by anyone in law enforcement. If it is so sensitive, it may be that Mueller's team said, you know, this is something that we don't want every uh, agent, every police officer in America to be able to look at, and so we want to remove this from the database. So although this person may perceive himself to have been a whistleblower, it could be that it was Mueller's team or the Southern District of New York that asked to have it removed just so that, you know, we've got this and we don't need the whole world to see it and perhaps leak it, which is what, uh, in fact, happened as a result. And Barbara, isn't there a difference, though, between a leaker and a whistleblower? For the most part, whistleblowers are protected. They are viewed as champions and good guys and good women. But by going to someone like Michael Avenatti, do you sort of lose your whistleblower protection and status? Yeah, I gave a talk last summer called Whistleblowers or Leakers, Traitors <laughs> or Patriots, you know, talking about Edward Snowden and others. Normally, you can't sort of take it upon yourself to share it with an outside source. You're supposed to take it up to superiors within your organization to show that. So the right step would have been to go up uh, to his superiors within law enforcement to say, I've noticed this irregularity. Maybe we ought to investigate to see if there's a problem here. As a this is CNN Tonight. I'm Don Lemon. Here's our breaking news. There are now more than 1,150,000 cases of coronavirus in this country. More than 67,000 Americans have died. And if you are having trouble wrapping your head around that number, well, I want you to think of this. More than 13,000 people died in just the past week, just since last Sunday. So don't let anyone tell you that this is over because it is not. 
The coronavirus is still killing thousands of Americans every single week. We still don't have the testing we need, and that is a disgrace, quite, quite frankly. Nearly two months after the president promised anybody who needs a test gets a test. And we're still a long way away from a vaccine. But governors across the country are under pressure to open up and get their states back in business. More than 30 states have started reopening businesses and easing uh, stay-at-home orders. More to come this week. But as more and more reopen without even having met the president's vague guidelines, I want you to listen to what the president said just moments ago about the projected death toll. I used to say 65,000, and now I'm saying 80 or 90, and it goes up, and it goes up rapidly. But it's still going to be, no matter how you look at it, at the very lower end of the plane if we did the shutdown. But that is after Dr. Birx, Dr. Deborah Birx, claimed today that the White House always projected up to 240,000 deaths from the coronavirus. Our projections have always been between 100 and 240,000 American lives lost, and that's with full mitigation and us learning from each other of how to social distance. So that's what you call a contradiction. But this isn't the first time the president has contradicted his own experts. It's looking like it's heading to 50,000 or more deaths, deaths, not cases, 50,000 deaths. So we're talking about maybe 60,000 or so. That's a lot of people, but that's 100,000 was the minimum we thought that we could get to, and we, we will be lower than that number. We would have had millions of deaths instead of it looks like we'll be at about a 60,000 mark, which is 40,000 less than the lowest number thought of. Now, with all of the death that we've seen at 50 or 60,000 people heading toward, right now it's at 40, but 50 or 60,000 people, probably over 54, I see. Yeah, we've lost a lot of people, but if you look at what original projections were, 2.2 million, we're probably heading to 60,000, 70,000. Okay, and, and let's not forget this stunning statement from the president's own son-in-law and his senior advisor, Jared Kushner, calling the administration's coronavirus response a great success story. We're on the other side of the medical aspect of this, and I think that we've uh, achieved all the different milestones that are needed. So the, gov the government, federal government, rose to the challenge, and this is a great success story. This is no success story. Not while deaths are still climbing. But the president tonight is trying to pivot to reopening the economy. I think we're going to have an incredible following year. We're going to go into a transition in the third quarter, and we're going to see things happening that look good. I really believe that. I have a, a good feel for this stuff. I've done it for a long time. So I've said it before. Everybody wants the economy to, to come back. Come on. People are hurting. Millions of jobs lost. Millions of people not sure where to get the money to pay the rent and put food on the table. But well, the president wants to be able to showcase an economic recovery. It's his ace in the hole with Election Day just six months away. And he just can't seem to muster the kind of compassion that we need from our president, with more and more Americans getting sick and more and more Americans dying. He is longing to get back to crowded campaign rallies, right? Siri says, hopefully our country will soon mend. We are all missing our wonderful rallies and many other things. Uh, no, we're not. He's bragging about his golf courses. And then there is this. 
one of the most transparent and ludicrous attempts at distraction that we have seen from a president who has got a, a million of them, retweeting an utterly absurd claim by a conspiracy theorist that the former president, Barack Obama, was behind what he calls the Russia hoax. This one is really a new low from a president who goes low all the time. It is obviously completely untrue. It's a disturbed fantasy. And just as obviously, he doesn't really expect you to believe it. He just wants to turn the page, to get you to think about something, anything, other than one of the worst crises in this nation's history. Look in the mirror, Mr. President. It's you. And this is nothing but a shameless attempt to distract from your own administration's mishandling of a crisis that's cost over 67,000 American lives. And by the way, you were warned about a pandemic like this by the Obama administration. Yet at a time when we need leadership, when we need compassion, this is the crap that you're peddling, conspiracy theories. Like I said, it is shameful. But thank goodness there is a president, a, a, a real president that is showing compassion for his fellow Americans. And it is not President Trump. It is former President George W. Bush with a message full of images of and concern for all Americans. Let's remember that the suffering we experience as a nation does not fall evenly. In the days to come, it will be especially important to care in practical ways for the elderly, the ill, and the unemployed. Finally, let us remember how small our differences are in the face of this shared threat. In the final analysis, we are not partisan combatants. We are human beings, equally vulnerable and equally wonderful in the sight of God. We rise or fall together, and we are determined to rise. And how does President Trump respond? Predictably, he makes it all about him, about his wounded pride, his constant airing of grievances, tweeting that former President Bush didn't defend him on impeachment. The president's impeachment trial ended in his acquittal on February 5th. The very next day, the first American died of the coronavirus. More than 67,000 Americans have died since then. How about thinking about them for a change instead of nursing your grudges? How about showing some compassion? Former President Bush did it. So did former President Barack Obama. Hi, everybody. Let me
now passed 60,000 deaths. Imagine that, 60,000 deaths from the coronavirus in this country. You probably remember it was, it was just last week that the president was predicting the, the total death toll from the virus. It would be 60,000. That would be the total death toll. We are already past that point. There are still many more people in the hospital, many more people who are sick. But as there are more and more cases, over 1,038,000, as, as deaths past 60,800, there may, may be, excuse me, if I can get my mouth to work, there may be a glimmer of hope on the horizon. A glimmer of hope, and that's good news. Dr. Anthony Fauci, optimistic about a possible drug treatment for the coronavirus. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. Okay, so here's what that means, just from that short soundbite from Dr. Fauci. That means that patients with severe coronavirus infections who took remdesivir could recover faster than patients who didn't take it. A preliminary trial shows that their recovery time went down from 15 to 11 days. It shortened it by about four days. It's not a miracle cure, but what's exciting to doctors is, is that this is the first thing that seems to have an impact on the coronavirus. The New York Times is reporting the FDA plans to announce an emergency use authorization for the drug. That as the Trump administration, is launching a project to speed up the development of a potential coronavirus vaccine with the goal of manufacturing hundreds of millions of doses by the end of the year. But there's no vaccine yet, though there are projects in the works around the world. All of this just proves that we need more testing. We need to know how far this virus has spread. We need to know how many Americans are at risk. That's obvious to everybody. Well, maybe not everybody. If we do two million tests, they said, how come you didn't do three? Well, we do three, and then they say, how come you didn't do four? That's like a, that's like a dream for the media. But we've done incredible with the testing. And you'll see over the next coming weeks, Mike, you may be want to speak about that a little bit, but over the next coming weeks, you'll see some, some astonishing numbers. I don't know that all of that's even necessary. So he's president, and the president doesn't know if all of that testing is even necessary? Mr. President, with over 60,000 dead Americans, it is necessary. And wasn't it you who made this promise almost two months ago? Anybody that needs a test gets a test. They're there. They have the test. And the tests are beautiful. Okay, he said what he said. Maybe he said what he said today, not because the testing is unnecessary, but because the president has not been able to deliver on his promise. The president is contradicting his own administration's guidance and the advice of experts because he apparently wants to paint a picture of an America that's over the virus and is roaring back. And it's not the first time that he has done an about face on testing. And it's not even the first time today. You said that we will very soon be testing 5 million people. Well, I don't know where 5 million when yeah. you said that. I'd like to refer to these two people because I don't know where it came up. Everyone kept saying, you said there'd be 5. That was a study that came out. Somebody came out with a study of 5 million people. Do I think we will? I think we will, but I never said it. We're testing millions of people. We're testing more people 
than anyone, any country in the world by far, by double, by much more than double, more than everybody else combined with testing. But somebody started throwing around five million. I didn't say five million. Somebody said five million. I think it might have been the Harvard report. There was a report from Harvard, and they said five million. Well, we will be there, but I didn't say it. Oh, he said it all right. He said it yesterday. I hear you saying you're confident you can surpass 5 million tests per day? Is that? Oh, well, we're going to be there very soon. Uh, If you look at the numbers, it could be that we're getting very close. I mean, I don't have the exact numbers. We would have had them if you asked me the same question a little while ago because people with the statistics were there. Uh, We're going to be there very soon. So he said that yesterday. Today, he claims he never said it. And by the way, Admiral Brett Giroir, the top administration official in charge of testing, told Time magazine yesterday, there is no way this country could conduct 5 million tests per day. Quote, there is absolutely no way on Earth, on this planet, or any other planet that we can do 20 million tests a day or even 5 million tests a day. But this president, who famously said, my gut tells me more sometimes than anybody's brain can ever tell me, he just doesn't want to listen to the experts, his own experts. He might even be a little bit jealous of them. It was a privilege to be here. And you were very inspired by these two very famous people over here. Yes. They become more famous than me. I'm a little bit jealous. (laughs) (laughs) What was that all about? All of this flip-flopping, all of this ignoring the experts, the people who actually know what they're talking about. It's about a president who thinks that he can just demand that everything go back to the way it was. I was uh, on the phone with the commissioners and some of the owners of sports, of, of uh, big-time sports, and he was talking almost like uh, he was going to have two or three seats in between everybody that was there. And I said, you know, you're not going to have to do that for that long. You know, it's, you're going to be back. He said, really? I, oh, really? He's, he was like... I don't want people to get used to this because this virus is going to be gone. And when it's gone, you want to get back to normal. You're not going to have a stadium that's 30% the size of what it was uh, three months ago. Uh, If I watch Alabama play LSU, I don't want to see 20,000 people instead of 120,000 people. We want it to be the way it was. Now, we've got to wait till it's gone, and it will be gone. And we've done a lot to get rid of it. Uh, but we, we want to open our country. The people want this country open. Yeah. Let me just uh, say something before I move on with what I had planned here. I've seen so many people out and about lately. Not socially distancing, not wearing masks, not following the rules. This is not over. You may think it's over because if you, if you actually pay attention to what's happening in Washington with this administration, not having the briefings, trying to pretending that this is over, because they want to move on to other things. So not having those briefings, that's all part of the plan for you to think that this is over, that we have moved beyond this. People are still dying at alarming rates. Those quarantine orders that are given, they're still in, in, in place. They're still, they're still orders in most places. So don't get it twisted. Don't sit there and think that this is over because 
you've just you've been in the house for a long time. That's not so. Think about the people who are giving up their jobs, who have come to New York and other places and are putting their lives on the line and their health on the line. And yet you're out running around and you're getting coffee and you're doing your thing and you're running around to the store without your mask. And I see everybody out on the internet. Every day I, I come into work. I go between my house. The last two weeks have been my house and work. And I see more and more traffic. I don't know where people are essential. I don't know where they're going. But this is not over yet. Until the authorities tell you it's over, then it's over. No more than 10 people. that you have been with for the last however many days that you have been in quarantine. That's how it works, people. Why are people sacrificing so much for you to pretend you're doing it, but not really do it? You're putting other people's lives at risk. This is real. Now, this is, uh, the fact is for everybody, Everybody wants this country to open. Nobody. I come into an empty building, a giant. I work in a high rise. That's I don't know, 100 stories. I have no idea. I'm probably one of seven people in this entire building right now. It's lonely. That is not even a big deal. Who cares? But I want to be around people just like you want to be around people. I want my entire staff back. I'm in the studio. There is nobody in here but me. Everybody wants to get back to work, but when it is safe, when officials, when the experts tell you it's time to go back to work, it's time to let up off the gas, do it when the experts, the scientists, the doctors, not when the politicians who are playing political games tell you, the politicians who are listening to the scientists.